You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Well, please open your Bibles or scroll in your Bible apps to Exodus chapter 19. Now, the book of Exodus is pretty easy to find, second book of the Bible. And so you can start at the beginning, flip to the left a bit, and you will get there. And we are going to be in Exodus 19. And the title of my message this morning is Origin Story. Now, something you need to know about me, I am a massive superhero nerd. Like, don't let the cool clothes fool you. This, nerd. All the way through, I am a nerd. I love comic books. I love the superhero movies. Well, at least most of the movies. Love the TV shows. Like, I love all of it. And in case any of you are wondering, Batman. Batman is the greatest superhero of all time. It's not even a debate. You know, you superhero fan, or your Superman fans, Spider-Man fans, it's like, yeah, no, you're wrong. You know, come at me, bro. It's okay. But one of the best parts of superhero stories is their origin stories. Like any great superhero has a great origin story, and any great origin story has sort of two components. There's one is that moment where that person who was unknown and not so spectacular becomes a superhero. So there's this life-changing moment where they get their powers or get their abilities, and so it changes them. It changes who they are. But then also in the origin story, you learn why they do what they do. You're learning their motivation of why they have decided to give their life to help other people. So it's Batman's crusade against crime because his parents were killed, or with great power comes great responsibility for Spider-Man, or truth, justice, in the American way for Superman. Origin stories tell us not only who they are, but why they do what they do. And I know you all have been in a series in the book of Acts the past few weeks, and you've been reflecting on what it means to be the church. What are essential aspects of God's community. And so you are looking at gospel and community and mission. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to kind of gather up all those themes and emphasize them some more for you all. But I want to do so by telling an origin story. You see, gospel and community and mission, these are core to the identity of God's people because they are part of our origin. We as the church today, what we do as the church today in following Jesus Christ and making disciples of Jesus, that is the fulfillment of God's plan and purpose from the beginning. Like Our origin as God's people is this timeless story. It goes throughout the ages. So I want to look at how this all starts way back in the beginning of the Bible in order to encourage you all and who you are as the church. And to look at this origin story, we are going to consider a story in the book of Exodus. And here is the main point. Here's the, the core truth that our origin story tells us, that God's grace creates a holy people on mission. God's grace creates a holy people on mission. And before we jump in, let, let, me, let me just say, in particular, for those of you who are in the room and Maybe you, you don't profess faith or maybe you're unsure of what you believe. I am so glad that you're here. Let, let me welcome you. I'm not, I'm not the pastor of the church, but, but let me welcome you here because here's what I can say with confidence, that the pastors in this church, the leaders in the church, this, this congregation, they would love nothing more than just extend hospitality to you right where you are, no matter where you are in your faith journey. And I'm excited for you 
that you're here this morning because my burden is that you would hear God's word and hear it clearly. There is so much noise, there's so much static, there's like so much nonsense in our culture that sometimes in the church, why we do what we do, who we are as the people of God, it can get clouded and confusing at times. So my, my hope is that you would hear God's word clearly, understand what it means to follow Christ and be part of the people of God, and that would stir some things in you. That would stir questions, that would provoke thoughts, and that, and that would cause you to want to explore and learn more. And so whether you are a confident believer in Jesus, this is for you. Whether you're someone who's wrestling through faith, I want you to hear this message just as much as anyone else in the room. Well, let me uh, set a little bit of context for it, because I know you guys haven't been in a series in Exodus, and Exodus 19 kind of picks it up in the middle of the story. So let me set just a little bit of context for you. And one of the great things is, even if you're not that familiar with Scripture, Exodus is one of the most well-known books of the Bible. You may not be familiar with a lot of things in the Bible, but you've probably heard of things like the Ten Commandments, and Moses, and, and Egypt, and slavery. This is all in the book of Exodus. And so here, here's sort of the context. Here's what's happened prior to Exodus 19. After 430 years in slavery, God has dramatically and powerfully rescued Israel out of slavery to Egypt. He, he calls a leader named Moses, and he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And so Moses goes, and there's this epic sort of standoff and stare down. Uh, the Pharaoh says, no way I'm going to let that happen. And so then God unleashes a series of plagues on Egypt. And after that series of plagues, it culminates with the death of the firstborn the Pharaoh finally relents and lets Israel go. And so Moses leads the people out of Egypt. But almost immediately, Pharaoh regrets this decision. He's like, dumb, we lost all of our workforce. And so the army of Egypt goes after them. And there's this another, another epic standoff at the Red Sea. And God miraculously intervenes and he splits open the sea and Israel passes through safely. And uh, Egypt chases them and then he drops it on them and drowns the Egyptian army. But something happens that's in some ways a little bit unexpected. On the other side of the Red Sea, the Lord doesn't lead Israel right to the promised land. Actually leads them through a wilderness, very difficult, where they face the threat of hunger and thirst and hostile armies. But over and over and over again, God shows himself faithful. He provides food, provides water, gives them victory over the hostile nations, and he's showing he is faithful. He's showing that he is their protector and their provider and their sustainer. And so he is bringing them through the wilderness and he brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And that's where our story picks up in Exodus 19. So let me read verses one through six. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the Lord has brought Israel to this mountain in Sinai for a significant and special purpose. Here he is going to constitute and commission them as his people. Here they are going to enter into a covenantal relationship where 
God, the Lord is going to be their God and they are going to be his people. This is the moment where that relationship is, is coming into formation. This is their origin moment. This is where all of those significant experiences that they just had over the past several months, God rescuing them out of slavery, bringing through them through the wilderness, all of that has brought them to this point where they're now going to be given a new purpose in life, a new mission in life. And the order of progression, the words that God speaks to Moses here are so important. Verses three and four. Thus you shall, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So where does the Lord start in this, this whole sort of covenantal ceremony? He reminds them of what he has just done. He, he reminds them, hey, you yourselves, you saw how I rescued you out of slavery how I put my glory on display. I showed out and I brought the Egyptian gods to nothing. I showed that all those false gods mean nothing. And then I declared my strength and showed my strength over the Egyptian army and showed that the most powerful empire in the world for all their military might, nothing compared to my strength. I brought you out and I've been carrying you through the wilderness and I'm still carrying you. I am your protector, your provider, your sustainer, your redeemer. He starts by highlighting his grace to them, his love and his mercy to them. And so now we, here we need to, to ask an important question. Why did God act to rescue Israel? Why, why did he decide to, to bring them out of slavery? Did Israel deserve this? Did they earn it? Absolutely not. As other places in scripture will tell you, while they were in Egypt, they were not faithful to the Lord. They were not a faithful people. They, there was nothing that they had done in their performance, in their worship, in their lifestyle that would sort of say, yeah, they deserve to be rescued. Why does God rescue Israel? Well, if we go back to the beginning of Exodus, when we first learn of Israel's suffering and slavery, we read that Israel is groaning and they're crying out for deliverance. And here's what Exodus 2, 24 and 25 tell us. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites and God knew. God wasn't indifferent to their suffering. He wasn't at a distance from their suffering. But it says that God remembered his covenant. This, this, is, this is an important thing to understand correctly because if we don't, we can maybe think, well, did God just forget about Israel? He's like, oh, oh yeah, those guys, Israel. Oh yeah, I, I should probably go down there and do something about them. No, God did not forget about Israel. This term, God remembered his covenant. This is a Hebraic expression that means to act in or motivated by covenants. So let's, let's imagine that I'm sort of in this situation where my faithfulness to my wife is being challenged or tested. There's a temptation to not be faithful. And in that moment, I, rem I remember, no, I made a covenant with my wife to be faithful to her. And because I remembered that covenant, I stand faithful. I'm motivated by that. Did I forget that I was married to my wife? No. But I called to remembrance that covenant, and now I'm motivated by that. God being, God remembering his covenant means he was motivated. He was acting out of covenantal love for Israel. Why does he rescue them? Covenantal love. He's committed to them. He made a promise 
And so here, we need to just a moment step back a little bit further in time, back to Exodus, or excuse me, to Genesis 12, where God comes to a man named Abram, later called Abraham. He calls Abraham to leave his home, and he says, you leave your home and follow me. I'm going to promise you blessing. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you countless descendants. And through those descendants, all of the world is going to be blessed. God promises Abraham the moon. I mean, he just promises him everything if he will follow him. And here we have to ask another question. Did Abraham deserve this? Did Abraham deserve God to come to him and bless him with all of these things? Again, the answer is no. The people of Abraham, the people that Abraham belonged to, his nation, his tribe, they were moon worshipers. So when God comes to Abraham, he doesn't find him worshiping the one true God. He isn't faithful and promises blessing because Abraham is faithful. No, he comes to him in grace. He comes to him because God is a gracious and merciful God. Nothing that Abraham has done, it's entirely God's grace. And so listen, Connection Church, our origin story of the people of God, all the way back to the beginning, is a story of grace. No matter how far you trace this back in Scripture, it is a story of grace all the way down. God's grace is the reason that any of us are in relationship to him. God's grace is the reason you all are a church, you all are a people. The reason any of us are in covenantal relationship, close union and communion with God is because of his grace. So the question for us is this, do we get this order right? Do do we get the order that our origin starts with God's grace and not our performance? Or are you trying to earn relationship with God? Are you trying to earn blessing from God? Are you trying to get God to move in a loving way towards you, in a merciful way towards you, based on performing and doing enough for him? Well, the first question is, how do you know if you've ever done enough? Like, is there some sort of thing you can Google and say, you know, know, did I perform enough for God? Google, tell me. We, we, We can't. We can't quantify that. And here's the other thing. We cannot ever perform enough for God. If you, if you think of Israel's political situation, they were enslaved to the most powerful empire at the time. What chance did they have of overthrowing that empire on their own? Like, what chance did they have? I mean, if we were just to sort of try to quantify it, I mean, very, very small. The percentage is going to be small, if not next to impossible. Well, whatever chance they had, however small, infinitely smaller for us to ever earn God's favor. Why? Because what we are enslaved to, things that we could never free ourselves from. We are enslaved to sin in and of ourselves. We are enslaved to evil in and of ourselves. Apart from the grace of God, here, you and I, we choose our sin. We love our sin. We choose our rebellion. We, we actually tighten the chains ourselves. And yes, sometimes we curse our chains. Sometimes we'll curse them, but why do we do that? Because it's just making life hard. We don't really hate our sin in and of ourselves. We choose it. We are enslaved, as Scripture tells us. What hope could we ever have of freeing ourselves when we are willful slaves to our sin apart from the grace of God? So we cannot save ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot set ourselves free with enough effort. But this, Connection Church, 
is why the gospel is such good news for us. This is why the message of Jesus Christ is such good news. Because what we learn through scripture is that promise that God first made to Abraham, that through your descendants, all the nations would be blessed, that God has fulfilled that promise through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And then that great rescue and redemption that Israel experienced, being rescued from slavery, as great and monumental as that was, it is but a picture, a sign, a foreshadow of an even greater rescue and redemption through Jesus Christ. Our origin story of grace, the fullest expression, the greatest, most glorious expression of that grace is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Because here's the good news of the gospel, so that you and I could be set free and forgiven of our sin. God in his rich, deep mercy, while we were still sinners, sent Jesus to die for us. And on the cross, Jesus takes the full wrath and judgment of God on himself as he is struck down and killed. But he doesn't stay dead. On the third day, he rises again victorious over sin, over evil, and over death itself. And just as Abraham put his faith in the promises of God, just as Israel put their trust in the mercy and grace and power of God, all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ experience the power of God. We are forgiven. We are set free. We are brought into covenantal relationship with God, loved and cherished as sons and daughters. And all of that, all of that, because of God's grace. We don't perform for any of this. We receive it. Because listen, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He lived the ultimate, he died the ultimate sacrificial death, and he has been raised in victory over sin and death and evil. He's the resurrected and reigning king. Like Jesus did all of that, what do you got? Like, what do you bring to the table? What do I bring to the table compared to what Christ has done? Nothing. And that's good news. That is good news for us. Jesus has met our deepest need, and he has defeated our greatest enemies. This is our origin story. God's grace to us. And that grace to us has a purpose, to create a holy people, as the Lord goes on to tell Moses in verses five and six. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So in light of his grace, the Lord, he calls for a response. Keep my covenant. And so to be brought into covenant relationship with the Lord, this means something. This is no small thing. Covenant is an all-in commitment. And so what does it mean to keep God's covenant? Well, simply put, it's responding in the obedience of faith. And so the Lord powerfully rescues Israel, and he brings them into covenant relationship with them, and theirs was to respond to God's grace by taking hold of that in faith. Theirs was to respond in faith, and that faith led to an obedience. They were going to follow God in his word. They were, they were going to worship God alone. Their lives were going to be shaped by the glory and righteousness of God. And so friends, listen, God's grace is not just sentimental good feels meant to get you to think that God's a nice guy. No, God's grace is his power to rescue and redeem. And that power, that rescue, that redemption demands and is worthy of nothing less than our faith. Worthy of nothing less than us giving our entire lives to him. 
And as much as Israel had reason to put their trust in the Lord because of what he did for them and how he rescued them out of slavery, we have all the more reason. Consider God spared no expense to rescue us. He, He sent nobody less than his son. He did not even spare his son to rescue and redeem us. Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins. He's now the resurrected and reigning king. And all who put their faith in him are forgiven and transformed and set free from sin. And one day Jesus is coming back and he's going to renew all things. No more sin, no more suffering, no more death. Just life to the fullest forever and ever. Such grace has been given to us. Such grace demands is worthy of nothing less than our faith, our trust, our loyalty, our obedience. And so we respond to God's grace in faith, and that faith translates into and becomes obedience. We, like Israel, we don't keep covenant to earn salvation, but in response to God's grace, we respond in faith, and we keep covenants as an expression of of our faith. There's a man in our church who, who became a believer a few years ago, and I love his story. So his name's Matt, and if you meet Matt, here's, here's what he'll, he'll just see. He's a just typical Midwestern Nebraska trucker. He's in his mid-50s, bald. He just looks like a trucker, really nice guy. But when he came, the, the thing that was really interesting about him is he was a like devout practicing Buddhist. Like, I don't meet many Buddhist truckers. I don't know if you've met Buddhist truckers, but he was a Buddhist trucker. And, and so, so there's some circumstances in his life where, where he was going through some pretty significant issues in his life, and there were members of our church that were, were his neighbors. And they reached out to him and just loved him through one of the darkest times in his life. And so they, they brought him to church. They brought him to First City on a Sunday, and we happened to be preaching through Galatians. And, and what struck him about the book of Galatians was a couple things. It was one... Everyone in his world, he, he had been deeply betrayed and hurt by somebody, and everyone in his world was just kind of telling him to do the Buddhist thing and detach from it. But all the Christians were saying, no, that's not right. That's actually broken. That's actually wrong. That's happening to you. But then when he would come and he would hear, as we were going through the book of Galatians, he, he heard this, you don't perform for God's favor. You don't perform for salvation. You don't perform to get God's grace. It's just given to you because God is a gracious God. And that resonated with him. He's like, whoa, this is a complete change for me and my understanding of my relationship, my spirituality, my relationship to God. And he was radically saved. And when he told his testimony, here's what he said. He said, in light of that grace, what could I not do but follow him? He was so taken about how God had saved him. He's like, there's no other response. There's nothing else that I can do but live for him because he has saved me. He's that gracious, that good, that loving. Friends, What else can we do but respond in faith to such grace that has been given to us? And when we see the blessing that comes when we do respond, verse five, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenants, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You know, you talk to anyone who collects things, and maybe you're, you're one of these people who collects, whether it's baseball cards or books or stamps or coins or dollars or action figures, whatever it may be. Those who collect things Among their collection, they typically have like a prized possession. Like, this is the thing I like most. This is my best stamp or my best coin. This is my my favorite G.I. Joe action figure. Whatever it may be. All their collection is theirs. But there's something that's particularly special. 
Here's what the Lord says to Israel. Everything belongs to me. All people belong to me. I'm the Lord over all of it. But to respond to my grace in faith is to become my treasured possession. The ones that I treasure the most, that I cherish the most, out of everything else that I own, you are special. You're going up on that place, that special place, that mantle. You have been marked as different. You are my treasured possession. This is what faith brings to us. This is what we experience when we put our faith in the grace of God. We are made God's treasured possession. We are, tre- we are cherished, we are loved, and we experience that. But there's something else here that's just as important. In keeping covenant, we're not only a treasured people, but we're also a holy people. The Lord calls Israel a holy nation. And so when we think of the word holiness, typically the first thing we think of is moral purity. If I'm holy, that means that I have to be a good moral person. And purity is part of holiness. That's part of the equation. But that's not the the, the first definition of it. That's not sort of the tip of the spear of the definition. The, the, The first definition of holiness is to actually to be set apart. To be set apart as uniquely special. That you're no longer living for a common or a low purpose. You, you may have grown up in a house with, with fine china, or maybe you, you have that in your house today. You, you have fine china. You have special plates in silverware and dishes that have been set aside. Those things are holy. Why? Because they're for special occasions, special dinners. You don't just bring them out for Thursday night mac and cheese. They're set apart. They're distinct. They're holy. Israel was going to be set apart. Their origin story was to be set apart with a distinct purpose. They were special. They were different. The origin story of God's people is to be a holy people. And, and listen, to, to, to sort of use the, uh, the analogy of superhero again, I'm not saying that we are a bunch of, of, of spiritual superheroes. I'm not, I'm not trying to put that burden on you. That would be quite a burden. But there is an interesting parallel here because within the sort of superhero mythology, they have this significant life-changing experience. And because of that, now they have been set apart for a distinct mission and distinct purpose. And we, as the people of God, we have been set apart for a special purpose, special mission because of the radical grace of God that we have experienced through Jesus Christ. Those life-changing, life-altering events that Jesus has brought into our life to save us That sets us apart. We're different now. Our lives, our purpose, it's different. It's holy. It's unique. It's special. This is our origin story. So the question we have to ask is, do we embrace this? Do we embrace being a holy, different people? And if I can press here for just a moment, is that difference more than just voting Republican in how you educate your kids? You can send all complaints to Jonathan at SiouxFallsConnection.com. <laughs> I, I tease a bit here, but, but I am also serious. For, for some reason, church, we've done this thing where we have minimized how different we are. We, we've minimized what it means to be holy. And I don't know if that's because we don't want to be seen as legalistic or we, we don't want to be uh, seen as like those angry fundamentalists who like condemn everybody to hell or we just don't want to be seen as weird by the world. Well, whatever the reason may be, we've, we've turned the volume down on how different we actually are supposed to be and how we are to live. 
We've turned the volume down on our holiness. And so, listen, yeah, don't be a jerk. Don't be a legalist. Don't be an angry fundamentalist who yells at everybody that they're going to hell. If you want to be weird, you do you. That's fine. But, yeah, don't do those things. But listen, we have been called to a holy purpose. We have been set apart by the grace of God. And that's all of our life, not just a few little things that we sort of come up with a list on our own. No, it's an entirety of our lives, even in the things that are hard, even the things that are difficult. We have been set apart to be a holy people. This is our origin story. So whether it's, whatever it may be, like this is going to be lived out in your normal life. Absolutely. We live this out in our normal life. But make no mistake, you're different. If you're in Christ, you're different. You have been set apart. You have a wholly different purpose. And so what you give your life to, different. What you live for, different. Who you worship, different. How you spend your time, different. What you give your money and resources to, different. How you treat people, different. How we deal with conflict, different. How we love and serve and sacrifice, different. What we do with our sexuality, different. How we live as singles, different. How we live as married, husband and wife, different. How you raise your kids, different. In all of these things, we are called to be a holy people. We are different. And it's not because we're better. It's not because we're superior. It's not because we we walk around as spiritual snobs. No, it's because the grace of God has changed us. The grace of God has changed us. Because of the grace of God, we no longer live for a common purpose, but a kingdom purpose. Because of the grace of God, we no longer walk by and live in lies, but we walk by truth. Because of the grace of God, because of the grace of God, we no longer live self-sufficient lives, but we live lives empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because of the grace of God, we no longer chase the idols of, of wealth and comfort and pleasure and status and success and sex. No, we live for righteousness and goodness and truth. Because of the grace of God, we are no longer those who are caught up in anger and pride and animosity. No, we are those who live for grace and mercy and peace and love. The grace of God changes us. And so, listen, friends, when we turn down the volume on how different we are, we end up minimizing the power of God and the grace of God in our lives. We minimize how grace has changed us. Yes, we're still gonna blow it. Yes, we still have to contend with our sin, but listen, you're not who you once were. We are not who we used to be because of the grace of God. And so even when we are blowing it, even when we have to, we, we, we wrestle through our sin, what are we doing? We're still trusting, we're still depending, we're still confessing and walking in repentance and we're experiencing the transforming power of Christ in our lives. We are not who we used to be. We are not those who were once dead in our sin and rebelling against God. No, we've been made alive. We've been made alive through Christ. We've been changed. We've been set free. We have been forgiven. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of that, because of that, we're holy. We're set apart. This is our origin story, church. God's grace creates a holy people. And that holy people, that holy people lives on mission. The Lord tells Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And priests had the, the distinct privilege of, 
of entering into the presence of God. One of the things that priests had access to was direct presence of God. They experienced God's presence personally and intimately, and their, ident- their identities were defined by service to God. But priests weren't just those who themselves entered the presence of God. They, they led others. They were mediators between God and the people. They, they brought God's word to the people. So they had this privilege of being in the presence of God, but then they also had a mission that they carried out. And so God's treasured holy kingdom of priests, Israel was going to, their set-apartness meant they would enjoy this special intimate access to the Lord. This was a privilege of being in a covenant with God. Their lives were going to be defined by worship and service to him. But it didn't stop there. It didn't stop there. Their set-apartness also meant they're going to be mediators between God and the nations. Their special purpose would be that they would bring the word of God to the nations. They would shine the light of God's glory to the nations so those nations would, be, would believe. And so listen, Israel's holiness, their set-apartness, wasn't just about their personal holiness. Their holiness was missional. Their holiness was missional. Their holiness was to bring others to the Lord so that the other nations could experience the grace and be saved and transformed. And what was true for them is true for us today. The origin story of God's people in Exodus 19, it continues for us, the church today. Listen to the language the Apostle Peter uses to describe the church. This is in 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. There There it all is, priesthood. Holy nation, people for his own possession. He is pulling on language from Exodus and he's applying it to the church. But he doesn't stop there. You are all those things that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why are we a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that we can go into the world and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? Church, your holiness is missional. Your holiness is missional. Your set-apartness is for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like God's light, God's light, his glory his grace, his truth, all all his attributes, they're marvelous. They are marvelous. And as we live holy lives, we testify to that marvel. We, We shine the light of God's glory into our world. And then we proclaim that that light is marvelous and we show that light to be marvelous. Your holiness is missional. Your holiness is to show the light is marvelous. Your set-apartness has a great purpose because in your set-apartness, as you live holy lives, here's what you're going to show. You're going to show how God takes wrecked and ruined sinners and he rescues and redeems them and he cleanses them and he transforms them. In your set-apartness, you are going to show how God takes enemies and rebels and makes them sons and daughters. Your set-apartness is going to show how those who were once under the judgment of God are now under the smile and delight of a father. Your set-apartness is going to show how God takes angry and angsty people with little to no hope who are striving for, a, for an identity and trying to find meaning and purpose in this world, and he takes them and he transforms them into a joy-filled, grace-filled, peace-filled, love, love-filled kingdom of priests who rest in Christ and find their identity in Christ. That's what your holiness is going to put on display, the marvelous light 
of God's grace. And so it's unfortunate, church, it's unfortunate. Sometimes we can often pit holiness, commitment to holiness and commitment to mission against each other. We can kind of see them as competing priorities. Well, we got to focus on one, but we don't focus on the other. And we might not necessarily do this outright, but there's ways in which we functionally do this. There's, you know, there's seasons where I just got to work. I can't, you know, I got to work on myself. Or, man, we got we to get more people. Let's just get going. And so we can pit these as competing commitments. But here's the reality. You turn the volume down on one, you will always turn the volume down on the other. You cannot turn the volume down on one without turning the volume down on the other. And I, and I say this with, with all respect and love, but if, but if you pop open the hood of a church that, that has decided, hey, you know, we're, we're more focused on kind of our, our holiness, if you kind of pop, over, pop open that hood and look underneath the surface, as much as the church wants to say they're about holiness, you're, you're not going to find a very mature church. You're not going to find probably a lot of spiritual maturity and a lot of holiness. You're probably going to find a lot of infighting and maybe even bickering and not a lot of unity. Why is that? Why does that happen? Because you can't go against the nature of something and expect to produce it. Holiness by nature is missional. And so if you do not have missional as part of the component of holiness, you're not going to produce holiness. And it's the same thing with us personally in our lives. If we, if we sort of just say, I'm going to shrink my world and just focus on me and just kind of be inward focused and, and kind of work on my own maturity and we're not living missionally, you're not actually going to produce holiness and maturity. You cannot work against the nature of something and expect to produce it. And conversely, churches that want to be on mission and so they're going, to down, they're going to turn down the volume on holiness because, I don't know, they don't want to offend anybody or they don't want to come across as legalistic or whatever the list may be. There might be a lot of talk of mission. There might be a lot of activity, but, but here's ultimately what's going to happen. No lives are going to actually be transformed by the grace of God. There's not going to be this sense of awe and wonder and worship. But look at how God has changed people and is transforming people. And as the awe and the wonder and the worship goes down, mission will die. Holiness and mission, they go together. By nature, they go together. By nature, they stand together as part of what it means to be the people of God. Holiness and mission go together like a hand goes in a glove, like peanut butter and jelly, peanut butter and chocolates, or as some people like ketchup and steak. These things go together. These things go together, and they're meant to go together. And so Connection Church, listen, your holiness matters. Your holiness matters. But your holiness is not to be contained within the walls of your home or in the walls of this church. You are meant to go and shine the light of God's gospel in the darkest places of Sioux Falls. You are meant to proclaim the excellencies of God's grace to your city and to your world. Holiness and mission. This is our origin story. This is who God has made us to be. And so, how do we keep this together? And as we are heading, heading out here, heading and landing the plane here, how do we keep holiness and mission together? We go back to the beginning of the progression. By regular encounters with cel- and celebration of God's grace, we keep holiness and mission together as we grow in our celebration and our experience of God's grace. Because listen, everyone is an evangelist about the things that most excite us. If you are excited about something, you will be an evangelist. You will live with a special purpose. You will live on mission. So 
summer, a year ago, summer, so summer of 22, uh, Mindy and I, we, we went on, so at my first pastoral sabbatical. So we went on sabbatical and we spent two months in Florida. And we were a, a bit north of Orlando and Mindy and I both, like, don't judge me on this, but we, we both like Disney. I mean, we, we do, we like Disney. Uh, it's kind of connected to that whole superhero nerd thing. So we took the opportunity to, to visit Disney multiple times when we were down there. And the first time we were down there, we were, we were standing in line at um, Splash Mountain, may it rest in peace. And we were, we were talking to, we were kind of just talking to some people as we were standing in line, and they mentioned this new ride at Epcot called Guardians of the Galaxy. And, and I, I thought, we thought it was, because we had been there a few years ago, and there's like a, a, a musical show that's Guardians of the Galaxy. We thought that's what people were talking about. Like, no, it's a new ride. And they're like, it might be the best ride in Disney. You, you've got to check it out. So we're like, okay. So we made plans when we went to Epcot. We went to this ride. And I kid you not, it is the greatest ride that has ever been invented by man. It is insanely fun. And if, if you're familiar with the movies, they, they, they sort of bring you into this immersive experience with the movies. But what's fun about the roller coaster is, so it's, it's indoor, it's like, um, so they incorporate like the movie, they have like a soundtrack, and so there's like classic rock playing. But the cars, so this, it's like the latest technology and so these cars are like on magnets. And so the car will move forward, backward. It'll kind of turn. And so you're moving at like every little angle. And it's just smooth. It is so smooth. And you're just, you're going through this and it is fun. It's like someone just punched your joy buzzer. You're just like, joy, 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 joy. Fun, 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 fun. <laughs> and so I, we, we just, we like, when, like we were just, you know, we, we went in, we were expecting to be great, but we didn't really know. But when we came out, I don't think we got the smile off our face for like a day and a half. I mean, it was just, so much fun. So we, we went back. We had to do it again. So we, when we, the, the next time we went to Disney, we made sure, like, we built our whole schedule around the day for when we went to that. And then we were there uh, last November, and it's like, again, we're going, and we're going to build our entire schedule around. And listen, I told everybody I could about this ride. I was like, you got to go. Like, everybody that I knew that loved Disney and they were going to go to Disney, like, go, this is the ride you have to go on. This is the greatest thing you will ever experience. I was excited I was evangelistic. I was so pumped up because that was such a great experience. There was so much joy in that. I wanted everybody to know it. I wanted everybody to experience it. Friends, when we are captured by the grace of God, when the grace of God excites us, when we see the power of the gospel in our lives to transform us and others, we are going to take holiness seriously because we're going to be excited about how God changes us and his power in our lives. And then we are excited about the grace of God to save and rescue and redeem sinners like you and me. We want other people to experience it. We want other people to know that grace and how, hey, he rescued me from my sin. He rescued me from my despair. He gave me hope. He transformed me. He washed me clean. Like, we want other people to know that. And so when we are fired up, when we are, have this deep experience with God's grace, we are going to be evangelistic and we are going to live in holiness. God's grace, the beauty of God's grace, brings holiness and mission together. When we are captured by God's grace, we will be zealous for both holiness and mission. This is our origin story, church. God's grace creates a holy people on mission. And so Connection Church, next week is a big week for y'all. Big week for you all. You are multiplying services. You are, you are creating more space for people to hear about Jesus. And so let me encourage you in this. Take this opportunity at this moment to celebrate God's grace 
As you expand your services, let it be a moment where you celebrate God's grace and let that celebration fuel your purpose. Live holy lives in every area of life and go and shine the light of Christ in the darkness that is in Sioux Falls. Go out and proclaim the excellencies of God's grace to sinners through Jesus Christ. This is who you are. This is your purpose. This is your origin story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us such an incredible story to be a part of. That your grace has saved us. Your grace has rescued and redeemed us. You've transformed us and you've given us a holy purpose. And then you've called us to be on mission, to declare, to proclaim, to demonstrate the glory of your light, the glory of your goodness and your grace. And so I, I pray for my friends, Connection Church, that in this, this season of transition, this season of growth, the season of multiplication, that even in the moments where, where it is hard and it is sacrifice and it is challenging and learning things and, and, and there, there's, there's going to be challenge and, and, and struggle here. But Father, may they just be so aware of your grace. May they be so excited, so captured that you would save us, that you would call us as your people, that you would call us to join you on mission, that, that all of that, that, that they would just be marveling at that. Really, you just sit back and go, imagine that. Can you imagine that? Look what he's done. Now, may there be joy in this, Father. May there be joy in the holiness. May there be joy in the mission. May there be joy in this identity of being set apart. And may it just bring grace. May it bring humility. May it bring love. Father, may it fuel, may it fuel desire for others to know you. Thank you for being a God who saves and a God who rescues and redeems. We love you. We worship you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.